O Almighty God, You are rich in mercy to all who call upon You, and You draw near to the humble and contrite for the sacrifices of a broken heart You will not despise. Even as You sent Your Son to be our Savior and to manifest Your grace in the world to all who put their trust in You, so You sent Your Holy Spirit. Indeed, Lord, we ask You today to send Your Holy Spirit on all who are gathered here so that we, being cleansed by Your grace and illumined by Your truth and heartened by Your peace, may receive Your gifts today and worthily show forth Your praise. Help us to learn Your Word in meekness, for in it there is wisdom. Help us to render thanks to You for all Your mercies, for we know this is what we were made for, to give You thanks. Help us to obtain gracious answers to all our prayers. For we know in crying out to You, You are our Father. You are sovereign and able to answer. You love us and are willing to answer. And help us to joyfully partake of Your bounteous table to the healing and nourishing of our souls. Indeed, Lord, when You send us out from here, may we go with Your blessing ready to live lives of love and sacrificial service towards others, ready to carry forward the mission that You have entrusted to us as Your church, the body and bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. O Lord, today we do give You thanks and praise for who You are and for all Your wonderful works. Marvelous are they in our sight. We rest in the sure mercies of Your covenant promises through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior in whose strong and glorious name we pray. Amen. Our lesson for the day is from 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 18. Listen carefully to God's Word. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, Keep yourselves from idols. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through your word, through your Son. We thank you that your Spirit is with us now to make your word powerful and effective, that your word shows us the way to salvation. We thank you that Jesus has come and revealed the Father to us. May we behold your glory this day. In his name we pray. Amen. If you think that this is maybe a bit of a strange way to end a letter, you're not alone. You're not the only one. Many Christians have read this ending section of 1 John and thought that this was... Maybe a bit puzzling. Maybe a bit unusual. John doesn't add any personal greetings. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans spends about a whole chapter giving personal greetings. John doesn't say anything 
to anyone. He doesn't drop any names. He doesn't say, you know, check in on so and so, tell hello, tell the other person I said hello. He doesn't say anything about uh, an upcoming visit, about his travel plans, about anything like that. And really, he doesn't even say goodbye. He doesn't even say, you know, yours truly, John, or you know, the peace of God be with you all, some benediction. He doesn't even really kind of close it with a a goodbye, a farewell, a until we meet again, that kind of thing. In fact, you might even say that John ends his letter on somewhat of a discouraging note, somewhat of a downer. This whole letter that's been supposed to be encouraging his audience and you know, telling them, exhorting them to, to press on, to keep the faith, uh, to remain steadfast in the face of opposition. He ends with, a statement of how the whole world lies in the power of the evil one and that there's to keep themselves from idols. This may seem a little bit troubling. And some in our own day uh, read this and compare it to the headlines that we see when we turn on the news or when we read uh, the newspapers or the news websites. And this only serves to reinforce the, the sort of pessimism that pervades our evangelical uh, churches. We hear about you know, jets being shot down. We hear about epidemics in Africa. We hear about revolutions and political instability in the Middle East, bombings in Gaza and terrorists doing all sorts of horrible things to children and Russia, you know, warmongering again and Christians being arrested and tortured and if we only were judging by sight if we only were judging by what we could see with our eyes we might be tempted to believe that when John says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one he means that Satan is in control but that's not at all what John means as we'll see and in fact, if we see with the eyes of faith, if we look beyond the current events that we can see right around us to the promises of God's Word, we'll, we'll see the way things really are. We'll see what God is up to in the world. So what then does John mean when he says the whole world lies under the power of the evil one? The world, that, that phrase or that word, the world, throughout Scripture you always have to look at the context of how that word or that phrase is being used. It can refer to a wide range of things, including the universe, meaning everything that God has made. It can refer to planet Earth, specifically. It can refer to all of a civilization or of a, of a society. Uh, it can refer to all humanity, all people. It can refer to all of God's people. But when John uses this word, he oftentimes has in mind those people and powers that are opposed to Christ. And more specifically, when John uses this word, he often has in mind apostate Israel, the, the Jewish uh, leadership that put Jesus to death and the Judaizers who continue to try 
to spread false teachings or infiltrate the church and deny the Messiahship of Jesus. So in John, uh, in, in 1 John chapter 2, John tells us, he says, do not love the world or the things in the world. And then he says that the reason the world did not know us is because it did not know Him. The world is everything and everyone that is opposed to Christ. But in John's Gospel, we see the specific reference to the Jewish apostate Israel, to the Jewish leaders hostile to Christ. In John 15, John says, if the world hates you, Jesus says this, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before you. And then he goes on in the beginning of chapter 16 and says, There will come a time when they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. He goes from talking about the world straight into talking about how they're going to be put out of synagogues and persecuted by people who think they're doing service to God. So John has in his mind a very close connection between the Jewish establishment that is opposed to Jesus and His Gospel and the world that is under the power of the evil one. In fact, in earlier in 1 John, we saw that John makes this bold statement that the world is passing away. The world is passing away. What is he talking about? I think he's talking about the old world, the old creation world. He's talking about the transitional time between when Jesus was raised from the dead and when God sent judgment on Jerusalem and on the temple in 70 A.D. That 40-year span where it was like two worlds were overlapping and he was saying that the old creation was coming to a close. The world was coming to an end, in a sense. The Jewish temple would, have, would be destroyed and there would no longer be anything significant left about the old covenant, the old creation. And so I think that it's in this sense that John says that the, the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. I think he's not encouraging believers to be pessimistic that the world's going to hell in a handbasket, so you might as well you know, get your nuclear shelter and uh, you know, hunker down for the... You know, for the you know, everything that's just going to fall to pieces, I think what John is saying is there is no use in going back to Judaism. There's no use in going back <clears throat> to, the, to the Old Covenant. There's no use in going back. These false teachers who were coming and denying that Jesus was the Messiah and trying to get the Christians to, to return, to sort of uh, live as uh, under the Old Covenant. He's saying that that is anti-Christ. That is what he has said earlier. Is that anyone who is opposed to Jesus, anyone who denies that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God, is anti-Christ. They are against Christ. And in fact, <clears throat> they're not only against Christ, but here he goes so far as to say that they are under the power of the evil one. In the power of the evil one. They are of this world. There's no middle ground, right? We've seen this before. There's no straddling the fence. Either you are for Christ 
or you are against Him. Either you believe that Jesus has come and has fully revealed the Father to us, or you are opposed to Christ and of the devil. John puts it in the starkest language. And of course, John has uh, nothing pessimistic to say to believers. Jesus himself said that he came to judge the ruler of this world. Satan was, in many ways, the ruler of the world before Jesus came. But Jesus says, I have come and I have come to judge the ruler of this world. 1 John 3.8, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. In 1 John 5.4, John tells us that everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And here in this passage in verse 18, we read that Jesus himself protects us and will not allow the evil one to harm us. This is not uh, cause for pessimism. This is not John um, moaning and groaning about you know, wringing his hands as if God is unable to carry out his promises. That the devil is just too strong for the gospel. No, this is, G this is John calling Christians to remain faithful to the Messiah who is ruling over all of creation. The Messiah who has been enthroned in the heavens, who has defeated death by His death and will reign until every enemy is defeated. Don't go back. There's no use. If you go back, you will only suffer judgment. We know this, John says. We know this is true because Jesus has come in the flesh and revealed the Father to us. Far, very far from closing with pessimism or uncertainty, John closes with three bold statements of confidence. Did you catch them? In verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep sinning, but he who was born of God, Jesus, protects him. And the evil one cannot harm him. We know that. We know that. Verse 19, we know that we are from God or of God. In verse 20, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. The true One. And we are in the true One. In His Son, Jesus Christ. Apart from Christ, we can have no knowledge of God. Apart from Christ, there is no way that we can know God. In fact, our, Paul tells us that our ability to know God, our minds are darkened by sin and destroyed by sin. And anything that we could even know about God, we suppressed. Sinful man suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. We can't know anything about God except for that Christ, the Word made flesh, has come from God and has revealed God to us and has given us understanding, has given us knowledge of God. It is through the Son that we know and have fellowship with the Father. The, the language that John uses here in verse 20 
is, is significant. He uses, <clears throat> most of your translations say, true, three times, so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, and in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God. But this is really the word for something that is real, something that is genuine. In fact, you could even say uh, that we may know Him who is the real deal. We may know Him. Jesus has come so that we may know Him who is the genuine article. We are in Him who is real. The, the genuine article. He is the real God. He is the genuine God and eternal life. Three times. He emphasizes that the Father and the Son who reveals the Father are true, are genuine, are the real deal. Because the Son who is the, the light of the world has illumined our darkened minds and has given us understanding of who God is. Through the Son, we have fellowship with the Father. The, the, the words that John uses for know are different words. In verses 18, 19, and 20, he's recounting factual knowledge that we can know with confidence as part of our faith. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning and is protected by Christ from the devil. We know for a fact that we are from God. We know that the Son of God has come. But then when he gets to the middle of verse 20, he says, we know for a fact that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him, so that we may experience Him, so that we may come to know Him intimately, so that we may have fellowship with Him. This is eternal life, that they may know the Father and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus gives us the knowledge of the Father. Intimate fellowship with the Father. Intimate knowledge of the Father as He reveals the Father to us. The Father is not some knockoff or not some cheap imitation. He is the real deal. And through Christ, we are in Him and have fellowship with Him. And this is why John closes with this somewhat unexpected exhortation. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now maybe that makes a little bit more sense. It doesn't just come out of the blue when we understand what John is emphasizing here with this emphasis on the fact that God the Father and Christ who reveals the Father are the genuine thing, the real deal. This is one of John's favorite words to describe Jesus. In John's Gospel, in chapter 1, verse 9, John says that Jesus is the true light who came into the world. In John 6.32, Jesus is the true bread from heaven. This is all the same word. He's the genuine thing. He's the real deal. Jesus in John 15.1 says, I am the true vine. He is the true vine. And in Hebrews 8.2, it 
It says that Jesus is a high priest in the true tabernacle that the Lord set up, not man. In Hebrews 9.24, Jesus has entered not only not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. This, this idea of God the Father and Christ being true is not only that they are not fake or not counterfeit. It means that Jesus is the fulfillment. It means that Jesus is the substance that was only foreshadowed by the Old Covenant symbols. It means that Jesus has come and revealed the Father in all His fullness. In the Old Covenant, the people of God were somewhat kept in the dark. There was The tabernacle was dark. It was so dark in there that without the lampstand burning, you wouldn't have been able to see anything. And the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, there was no light in there. The only light that would have been able to enter the holy place would have been the light from the lampstand when the curtain was open one day a year for the high priest to go in on the Day of Atonement. And that was on purpose because they couldn't see God's glory and live. There was a a cloud of smoke from the incense and it was dark and they couldn't really see and they were just to you know get in there, offer the incense, you know, sprinkle the blood and get out. You didn't want to be caught in there. You didn't want to see God's glory. You would die. But out of that darkness, the true light has come. And He has fully revealed the Father to us so that it's no longer the Father is no longer hidden behind all the curtains and all the veils. The Father is no longer hidden from us but is made known to us. If we have seen Jesus, we have seen the Father. He is the real deal. The true thing. The fulfillment of the substance that the Old Covenant symbols only could foreshadow. And so 1 John ends as it began. Remember how 1 John began? That John says that he and the other apostles heard Jesus with their own ears. They saw Jesus with their own eyes. They, ch- they touched Jesus with their own hands. The eternal Word of God, the eternal life of God became flesh and blood. And so here John closes with three emphatic statements that Jesus is the true thing, the real thing, the genuine article. He has fully and completely revealed the Father. The application, the corollary, of course, is that anything or anyone besides Jesus, besides the Father whom Jesus revealed, cannot be God. If Jesus and the Father are the real deal, the the true thing, then anything else cannot be God. And so if if God is the only real thing, the real God and eternal life, then to cut yourself off from God means to cut yourself off from reality. You're living a delusion. In fact, you aren't really living at all according to Scripture. 
This is the only possible outcome of idolatry. Idolatry is not really mentioned that much in the New Testament. Only a dozen times or so. Jesus really never even speaks about idolatry. But we see in the Old Testament, and even in the New Testament to some extent, we see the devastating effects of idolatry. Psalm 115 that we sang puts it in no uncertain terms. Psalm 115 says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. In other words, you become like what you worship. And, as Rich was saying earlier before the service, you are shaped, we are shaped, by how we worship. How we worship forms us and shapes us, and who we worship forms us and shapes us. It could be that the beginning of 1 John is a direct play on Psalm 115. That John is saying that we, we heard Jesus with our own ears. We saw Him with our own eyes. We touched Him with our hands. He's not like one of these mute, deaf, and dumb idols that can't speak and can't walk and can't hear and can't smell. He's the real deal. We become like what we worship. And so throughout 1 John, he's been exhorting us to become like, to live like, to act like the one we worship. Ezekiel 22, our Old Testament lesson, gives a very vivid description of how idolatry causes a society to, to degenerate into immorality and injustice. Ezekiel 22 basically says, You have become guilty by the blood that you have shed. Got that? You have become guilty by the blood you have shed and by the idols that you have made. That's verse 4 of Ezekiel 22. You have become guilty by the blood you have shed and defiled by the idols that you have made. And then Ezekiel goes on to enumerate all the social sins, the sins against one another, against other people that were being committed as a result of the idolatry that was going on. They started with worshiping idols. They ended up with children hating their parents, with sojourners being exploited, with the fatherless and widow being taken advantage of, with all manner of sexual immorality being committed, with bribery, with murder, with usury, with extortion. And you see this connection always throughout the Old Testament. Idolatry leads to immorality and injustice. Paul even references this in 1 Corinthians 10 our epistle lesson for this morning. They worshipped the golden calf, and then all these other horrible sins started happening. They were led into sexual immorality. How? Through their idolatry. 
They were seduced by their gods. They started sinning against one another. The theme is, you can see the theme all throughout the Old Testament and even in the New Testament. So it makes sense for John to close with this exhortation. What of the three main themes that John has focused on in his letter are faith in Christ, belief and trust in Jesus as the Messiah, obeying God's commandments, or the negative way to say that would be not continuing to sin, and loving your brothers. Those are the three main themes that John has emphasized over and over again throughout his letter. And you can see the relationship between those three themes. That if you aren't trusting in Christ, you won't be obeying God's commandments or loving others. And on the flip side, if you aren't obeying God's commandments and loving others, John says there's a very good chance that you're not trusting in Christ as you ought. The two go hand in hand. Living right and trusting, believing right and living right can't be separated. And so the corollary, if, if idolatry necessarily results in immorality and injustice, then the corollary is that every sin issue is fundamentally a worship issue. Now that that's that's not what you're you know that's not what you're going to hear uh, in the world. People in the world they see terrible things happening and they want to fix a certain sin or a certain societal problem or a certain thing that's that's happening in our world by every means possible except for dealing with sin, except for dealing with idolatry, except for addressing the core issue, the root issue, which is a worship issue. Calvin said that the, the human nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols, right? And so we are always, anytime we, we sin, it is essentially an attempt to put something else in God's place, to elevate ourself or elevate someone else, elevate something that God has made into the place of God. This is what all sin ultimately comes back to in some way or another. Every sin at its root is an attempt to depose God and to set up ourselves or something else in His place. Idolatry necessarily leads to immorality and injustice. And immorality and injustice are a sure sign that there is idolatry in some form or fashion going on at some level. We, we probably, in our you know, southern culture, you're probably not going to come across too many people who actually worship idols, you know, have an idol in their house or something uh, that they, you know, you might run across uh, people like that. But 
Idolatry has much more subtle forms, much more dangerous and deceptive forms of loving, serving, fearing, worshiping anything other than Jesus Christ and the Father whom He reveals. And ultimately, because Jesus reveals the Father who is the true One, who is the real deal, who is the only true God and eternal life, anything else that we try to worship in God's place will be a lie, will be a delusion, will be fake, will be a counterfeit God. We take something, even something good that God has made, and we try to elevate it to the position of God, we will ruin it. And we will ruin ourselves. Because anything that is put in God's place can only become cheap and hollow and empty. And so the only triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, the only God, the only true thing who is eternal life, He alone is the real deal. He alone is the genuine article. And John says that we not only are of God, we are born of God, we are of God, not only are we in God, but we know God. We know Him. We have knowledge, intimate knowledge of Him. Fellowship with Him. And we must keep ourselves from idols that would lure us away from true life, from the abundant life that Christ has come to give us. And as we keep ourselves from idols, as we abide in Christ, as we experience that abundant life of Christ, we can be confident of what John says in verse 18, that God Himself is keeping us. And the devil cannot harm us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for these promises of Your Word. We thank You that You have come, that You have sent Your Son to reveal Yourself to us. We thank You that in Him we have life, we have light, we have eternal life, true life, not a counterfeit. Lord, help us to keep ourselves from anything that would lure us away from the abundant life of Christ, that in His name we may live out Your life in the world. In His name we pray. Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, Father of all mercies, we, Your unworthy servants, give You most humble and hearty thanks for all Your goodness and loving kindness to us and all people. We bless You for our creation, preservation, and all the blessings of this life, but above all, for Your immeasurable love and the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ, for the means of grace, and for the hope of glory. Give us, we pray, such an awareness of all Your mercies that with truly thankful hearts we may show forth Your praise not only with our lips, but in our lives, by giving up ourselves to Your service and by walking before You in holiness and righteousness all our days, through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom with You and the Holy Spirit be honor and glory. O God of all the nations of the earth, remember all those who, though created in Your image, 
are ignorant of your love manifested in the Lord Jesus Christ. And grant that by the prayers and labors of your church that they may be delivered from all idolatry, superstition, and unbelief and brought to worship you. Especially do we do remember before you, Lord, the labors of Peru Mission, Slavic Reformation Society, the CREC churches of Eastern Europe and Russia. Father, inspire their witness to Christ that all may know the power of His forgiveness and the hope of His resurrection. O Lord, our Governor, whose glory is in all the world, we commend this, our nation, to Your merciful care that being guided by Your providence, we may dwell secure in Your peace. Grant to all who bear office in our land wisdom and strength to know and do Your will. In particular, we remember before You President Obama, members of Congress and Supreme Court justices, as well as our civil officers at the state and local levels. Fill all of these who hold office with the love of Your truth and righteousness and make them always mindful of their calling to serve this people in the fear of You. Gracious Father, we pray for Your holy Catholic Church. Fill her with all truth and all peace. Where she is corrupt, purify her. Where she is in error, direct her. Where anything is amiss, reform her. Where she is right, strengthen and confirm her. Where she is in want, provide for her. And where she is divided, reunite her for the sake of Jesus Christ. Give your spirit to prosper and bring greater unity to all, to all our holy endeavors, to the glory of your holy name. Sovereign Lord, we pray against those who oppose your, tr your truth and persecute your church and disregard your gift of life and your institution of marriage. We pray that you would stop the spread of Islam, that you would humble the false god of Allah and protect Christians in the Middle East where they are facing brutal persecution. We pray that the church's enemies may be converted by the light of your glory and that those who shed innocent blood may be put to shame. O oh Lord, look down from heaven Behold, visit, and relieve your servants for whom we offer our supplications. Look upon them with the eyes of your mercy. Give them comfort and sure confidence in you. Defend them from the danger of the enemy and keep them in perpetual peace and safety through Jesus Christ our Lord. In particular today, we make bold to call upon you to watch over all expectant mothers in this congregation and in the circle of our loved ones. We pray for you to watch over the sick and the afflicted, including Ashley Hamlin, Michelle Stevenson, Brenda Jordan, Suzanne Shelton, John Harlan, Pastor Tom Clark, and especially be with the family of Pastor Boo Boo Charmulok as they mourn the loss of their son, David. Lord, in your mercy, grant all these the consolations of which they have need and overrule their present sufferings to their eternal good. Hear us, merciful Lord, in these our humble prayers which we offer unto you in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen.